0: Welcome, guys, and gals, to the Man Talks podcast. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. This week, I have an incredible guest joining me by the name of Jamal Yogi. And he's a writer, a teacher, an outdoorsman with a special love of surfing. His most recent book, All Our Waves Are Water, is the HarperCollins memoir that the BBC called The Best Beach Read of 2017, and uh, has just got some incredible reviews. Alongside, uh, he's also written Saltwater Buddha, a coming-of-age memoir about running away to Hawaii at the age of 16, and eventually winding up at Columbia Journalism School. Uh, So he's done some incredible things uh, throughout his career. He's got something called the Fear Project, uh, which we touch on briefly. Now we're going to talk a little bit about the lessons that surfing has to provide. But really, this whole podcast is actually about mindfulness. It's about meditation. It's about deepening our, our awareness to the present moment. And it's about being able to tune in and tap into our everyday experiences to actually deepen our awareness and, and help our ability to grow and develop ourselves, and not necessarily through a, a necessarily like a spiritual awakening, but more so an understanding that every moment is a moment that we can meditate. And so, uh, Jamal has a very unique perspective. We talk about athletics, so for all the athletes out there, I'm sure that you can relate to having those moments of flow, regardless of the sport that you're playing. Uh, and uh, so we're going to get into some of that, but just before I bring Jamal on, I just want to send a, a quick reminder out to everybody uh, to for all the guys to go out and, and join the Facebook group. We've got almost 3,000 men in that Facebook community from all over the world, and we talk about so many different incredible subjects, topics, there's challenges, uh, and there's just some incredible resources there. So head on over to Facebook and search for Man Talks Community. Uh, or you can just go to facebook.com/forward/slash/mantox-community and join the conversation. And just a final shout out: thank you so much to all of you uh, for the messages recently, and thank you for Manning it forward. It has been an incredible, incredible ride to see uh, you know the Man Talks podcast come up on Facebook and on Instagram and get shared through Twitter. Uh, so when you do share it, please tag me. And, uh, and, and, by all means send it to a few people. I've noticed that people love to send it, uh, specifically through like WhatsApp and iMessage and stuff like that. So, yeah. So thank you so much for sharing the podcast. It goes a long way into getting it into the, into the ears and onto the phones of other people. Uh, so if you're not subscribed yet, don't forget to, to go to Apple, Apple podcast, Apple music and subscribe through there. There's a link in the show notes. And uh, that's it for right now. So let's dive into some mindfulness, some meditation, and understanding how on a daily basis, we can use every moment to be more mindful and more present. So without any further delay, Welcome Jamal Yogi.
1: Hey, thank you Connor. Really nice to be here.
0: Awesome. So I I'm I'm excited for this
2: interview because you know we've gone back and forth a few times and I finally locked you in to be on the to be on the show and you know I've read your work and some of the things that that you talk about in around you know, facing fear, and and you've got the book, the Fear Project, and uh, being able to cultivate courage. These are some of the things that I wanted to dive into, along with meditation, and and maybe maybe just a dash of surfing. But I wanted to start off today with the with the question that I always start off with, and and that is, tell us a story about a defining moment that has made you who you are today. Um, yeah, the one that comes to mind
1: that really put me on the the journey that I'm on now is. A moment when I was about 16 years old, but to fill in the blanks, my dad was in the Air Force and in the Navy before that. And he'd been stationed on Oahu and learned to surf when he was in the Navy in Vietnam. And so we then been relocated when I was very young to the Azores, Portugal, little islands in the middle of the Atlantic and had been living um, sort of the beach life. And I always expected I would be a surfer. I was just kind of body surfing and boogie boarding and such as a pretty young kid. And then we got relocated to Sacramento, to the suburbs. And and that was a fine place to grow up. You know, it was like football and skateboarding and all the things you do in the suburbs. Um, but, you know, around adolescence, like every kid in the suburbs, you start dreaming of where you're going to go to get out. I was getting into typical teenage mischief, just, you know, partying a fair bit and, you know, not being honest with my parents about where I was. And I I got into that. I wasn't really the bad kid. But I think I got caught a whole lot more and I'd gotten a DUI. I'd gotten uh, suspended first from school for like smoking weed in the parking lot and just felt like one thing after another. And I kept getting grounded and I was frustrated and frustrated, frustrated with myself that I was caught up in the popularity contest so much that I couldn't really remove myself from the things that were getting me into trouble. So I I started having these dreams, literally, not daydreams, but night dreams about islands. And I remember one in particular catalyzed this idea that I should run away to Hawaii. <laughs> and so I did. Uh, bought a one-way ticket to Maui, left a note on my pillow that said, I'm somewhere in the world, don't worry about me. <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, I finagled away to get about a thousand bucks saved up. And, uh, so there I was spent most of it on the plane ticket and then on a surfboard when I got there, but I was, you know, alone in Hawaii and long story short, a couple of weeks went by and I, ended up telling my parents who were in a frenzy and looking for me and I was on probation and I mean, they had the they had the police looking out for me and all this stuff. My dad came over to get me. Um, but while I was there, uh, you know, scraping funds together, trying to get into school, trying to learn how to surf, you know, the tropics were not the full blown paradise I was hoping for. Hawaii was nice, but I think being alone and just confronting myself in that way uh, for the first time and having all that responsibility when I was 16 and realizing, you know, my money wasn't going to go far, et cetera, it really put me face to face with my own mind. And so it was right then that I picked up a book, my first book on Zen. My parents had been meditators growing up. It's the reason I got my name, but I was never, you know, typical teenager, just wasn't interested in what my parents were interested in. But I realized, hey, maybe I should try this and sat down on the beach and started trying to figure out my mind. And it was difficult. Um, I wasn't a natural meditator, but I remember seeing in one of those first sessions, just counting my breath and trying to let my thoughts drift by like clouds, like the book said, that I had this sense of spaciousness in my mind. And I likened it to the space that you find between waves when you're getting pounded down, and it was, I guess, a first glimpse of seeing that there was a a freedom and joy that was completely internal, and it wasn't dependent at all. You know, when you're in high school, you're so caught in the external of like getting, you know, who you're hanging out with, who's uh, where the next um, social gathering is, whatever. You get that's where you're you're getting all your happiness from that social order. And this was a glimpse of something else. And I was hooked. And I, because I was learning to surf, and I, I sort of, I brought these two together of waves of thought in the mind and waves in the ocean. And I never thought that would be uh, anything that I was uh, going toward career wise. But, you know, years later, after going to journalism school, I, and being a magazine writer for a long time, I, I decided I would, I would write about that connection. And so that sort of, moment was very foundational for what I'm still doing
2: today. Mm, Nice. Nice. Yeah. I like the analogy of the, of the waves and sort of like riding that waves and because it does seem to really fit. And I'm not too sure about, you know, other people's experiences, but oftentimes I find that for myself, there is this sort of uh, churning that happens it sort of does come in waves where all of a sudden there's overwhelming amounts of thoughts, you know, the task list, the the things that I still have to do, the, the things that I'm concerned about, maybe the anxieties, the things I'm excited about in the future or in the present. And it really does sort of like come on and then it'll dissipate and fall away. And for a period of time, they'll just sort of be like a little bit less uh, noise in my head. And I'm not too sure that's everybody's experience, but finding that space in between the noise has been extraordinarily beneficial. And and you know, I found that when I did start meditating like seven or eight years ago, my mind was so active. Like I had this really crazy active mind. And so for the most part, when I would sit down to to meditate for the first few times, for the first couple of months actually I found that I couldn't sit for more than like three to five minutes because anything longer than that was just uh, like, I found that I was fidgety and you know, I was thinking about too many things and inevitably I'd sit down and the first thing that would pop into my head would be something that I had to do. And so (laughs) that would distract me. But how do you like, what do you normally say to people that that are maybe just starting off meditation Um, you know, if you can, if you can think back into that space of being 16 16 years old and starting to meditate, what were some of the things that you found to be tremendously helpful? And what were some of the blocks that you experienced on the other side of that?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I I mean, first off, when I'm teaching meditation, I (laughs) I often tell a few jokes, like, um, you know, there's two monks watching TV, and they're one of them's like, hey, there's nothing on. And the other monk says, oh, let's watch that. <laughs> and I, and there's a lot of Buddhist jokes about, you know, not thinking like, uh, what is the Buddhist, how does a Buddhist boss compliment his employees? Um, you are the most thoughtless worker I've ever met. You know, they make sort of for good laughs, but uh, they're actually misleading in terms of what meditation is actually about. You know, Suzuki Roshi, one of my favorite uh, Zen teachers who came to America in the 60s, says that waves are the practice of water and thoughts are the practice of mind and that's an interesting statement coming from a a zen master and what he's basically saying is it's not about voiding out your mind or creating a special situation in your mind it's really meditation is really a way of seeing and a way of being so everybody has a lot of thoughts our mind our you know we have these brains that are supposedly the most complex organs in the universe you know the synaptic connections that you have going on are uh so some there are so many trillions of things you're not going to just you're not going to turn it off and you don't want to turn it off but what you do want to do is um realize that the mind is sort of churning out these thoughts on its own and that you have a choice of whether to get caught up in those stories and then sort of riff on them um or, or or extend the story, for example, like, you know, a, a, a train goes by while you're meditating and you're like, oh, you know, the mini train, like, oh, I've got to get to work uh, tomorrow at 8 a.m. And, you know, oh, you know, my boss has been such a jerk lately, whatever. And you start this sort of chain and that can sometimes lead, sometimes that can be a good chain of thought. Oftentimes, it's an anxiety-ridden chain of thought because we're all moving so quickly and pretty highly stressed in these uh, big city life of the modern world. Um, So uh, what I tell people is, A, don't worry if your mind is active. That's the sign of a healthy mind. And don't wait for some peaceful time when you think, oh, well, now I'm feeling clear, so I'll meditate. Meditation is really about sitting down, just noticing where your mind is at. Sometimes it's very stormy maybe a lot of fear or sadness. Sometimes it's rather placid. Maybe you had a great sleep, you know, you're on vacation. And both of those, you would just sit down and say, where am I at? And observe your thoughts as if you're just sort of up on a bluff looking at the ocean, like, how is it? And what mindfulness is, and what really, you could say, Zen practices, is then allowing those waves to be allowing those waves of thought to be and not Resisting them. So if uh, you're having some worries uh, that day, you just sort of acknowledge them. And you might say, that's okay. (laughs) Like, forgive yourself for having them. But then also realize that by noticing them, you have a choice of whether you're going to follow that story. And that's sort of the the key lesson. And it doesn't happen right away. In the beginning, it's like you're maybe you're counting your breath as your meditation, and you might get to three literally, just three breaths that you can take mindfully before you're caught in another chain of stories for a few minutes. And then if you're meditating for five minutes, it's like that was your meditation that day. But increasingly, um, coming back to your point of focus, which for most people they use the breath, but there are various um, things, mantras and such that you can use for your point of focus. Coming back to that point of focus is like a muscle. It's really like the first time you go for a run, you know, you're not going to run far. But as you practice, you build up that muscle of realizing that you're wandering off and coming back. But even you do, even a meditator of, gosh, I've been doing this now for 20 years, you know, every day. And I still have days where I just, you know, my mind's everywhere. And, I have no ability to come back to the breath and I might sit and realize I've thought about work for an hour (laughs) while I was sitting and that's okay. You still get a lot of benefit from just stopping your, your body and stilling your body. And you're getting a lot of, you know, chance for your body to go into sort of more parasympathetic mode and the cells are rejuvenating and so forth. So there's a lot of meditation brings benefit on a lot of levels, but, uh, On its most basic level, it's about accepting where your mind is at. Because when you resist a fear, much or a worry or an anxiety, it's like falling on a wave. And if you fight against the wave, once you've fallen, you run out of air quickly. And you're not ready for the next wave. And it's no use because you're not stronger than the ocean. And you're really not necessarily going to beat your trillion synapses either. It's like those are happening. And if you let them go and just acknowledge them and relax, then the wave passes by and you don't have to attach a story to it and you're not as pummeled by it. So that's kind of, that's the basics there.
2: Mm, That's awesome. Yeah. I think those are some, some really great sort of foundational pieces for people to actually implement when meditating and, and, and just having a sense of mindfulness, you know, that seems to be a big buzzword nowadays is mindfulness, but I think just being able to have a sense of that uh, during our day to day basis and not thinking, uh, or buying into the idea that, you know, we should be somewhere that we're not, or we sh- you know, our minds should be somewhere that are not. And I think that a lot of people, I hear a lot of people say like, Oh, I just have like a really crazy mind or, Oh, my mind's like untamable. And because of those beliefs, because of how they view their own mind, it's very challenging for them to actually sit and meditate because they have this internal belief that their mind is just something that they shouldn't be diving into or something scary to be diving into. And so out of that, I kind of have t- two two questions, because I think one of the things that I hear a lot of people say, maybe they self-identify, oh, I have this crazy mind or my mind is always racing. From your perspective, from the work that you've done, have you seen a correlation between you know certain activities that result in a really uh, ruminating mind or or a mind that just like is constantly going and can't seem to let go of things and creates a lot of anxiety um, like are, are there certain things that that just produce that mindset in people?
1: Um, yeah, well, it's a complex question. I mean, and one of the pieces, Before we get into maybe types of people, is that we're not, uh, you know, one of the foundational Buddhist insights is that we're not just separate individuals. There's no essential Jamal that is separate from the rest of, you know, the world and people and the universe. And what that means is not that I'm not here, it's not a nihilistic, like, oh, I don't exist, but it's that I'm more fluid with my surroundings. And so my surroundings, I affect my surroundings constantly. And I'm also becoming my surroundings constantly. Just like, you know, I eat carrots and things and they become my cells. And then, you know, I play with my kids and, and we uh, affect each other's minds. And also on a physical level, we actually even exchange some particles. So there's no, and that's happening over a lifetime. So what holds us together is our minds, our uh, ideas about our th- ourselves and then what i notice personally about how active my mind is or how sort of um what uh activates it is what i um the places that i put myself in the people i put myself around and then what i'm doing in those places so if i am uh hiking out on a mountain <laughs> and uh you know, I haven't been meditating at all, you know, maybe I've just been singing to myself, or what have you, Uh, if I then sit down, my mind will be much more clear, and meditation will come, uh, uh, focus will come much more naturally, because um, one, the natural world has a a tranquil effect, and also, I'm not taking in a bunch of uh, stimulating um, information, you know, like, all of the internet and television stuff that we consume, you know, on—I've uh, heard crazy statistics that Americans watch up, have the TV on up to ten hours a day, the on average. All of that stuff is meant to hook a sort of ancient part of your brain um, called the amygdala and produce emotion, so that you're gripped, and and that gripping is uh, and similar with the internet they need to keep you locked in some sort of fear or pleasure or dopamine release so they're constantly throwing these triggers at you that are meant to keep you locked and so it's very activating to the mind so if i sit on and you know read uh, read the news all morning or <laughs> or in a very stimulating atmosphere i mean that is that becomes my mind and, you know, one of my teachers, Robert Thurman, says, you know, you're always meditating, actually. But what are you meditating on? If you're meditating on McDonald's commercials and and crappy shows for 10 hours a day, then that is going to be where your mind is. That's literally. And also that becomes your sense of self. Um, if you're meditating on the lakes and streams and or the ocean, it's like that peace and tranquility that is natural to the natural environment is going to become who you are. So. That's not to say, though, that you can't be in New York City, as we were talking about before, Connor, and find a stillness within that. But that's like an advanced meditation practice to try to go into a place like Manhattan and maintain mindfulness. And as you get better at meditation, you can go into those spaces and maintain the same kind of equanimity that you could in a natural setting in a big city or in a chaotic workplace. But uh, again, it's it's like that's an advanced practice. And in the beginning, w- we can benefit a lot from every day going outside, being in somewhere that makes us that helps the mind settle so that the concentration aspect of meditation won't be such a fight.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really interesting. Some of the things that you were, were sort of pointing out there, you know, I saw a recent study, and I think we've all sort of, it's started to come into the mainstream consciousness in a big way that, you know, technology, while it is a champion in so many ways and improves our lives in so many ways, can also be a significant hindrance. And so you have things like, you know, the blue light that's emitted from cell phones, reading it, you know, lo- not reading it, but looking at your cell phone before bed, even just like before you go to bed can be really detrimental to your ability to drop into REM sleep and, and drop into a deep sleep. And so that, you know, that's a huge thing that they're saying you should stop looking at your phone 10 minutes before bed. There's also a lot of studies that have come out now that, that basically say that one of the worst things that we can do is wake up first thing in the morning, roll over and start going through our phone and start going on the internet and checking emails because it doesn't allow our brain time to actually wake up properly and sort of like stretch and and allow itself to be in a, in a healthy state. And so, you know, you have a lot of people that feel just so worn down and sort of strung out because they wake up first thing in the morning, their alarm goes off. And where does their alarm go off? It goes off on their phone. And then they pick up their phone and, you know, shut off the alarm and they go straight into their work emails or they go straight into text messages or, you know, what they need to do with their calendar or whatever. Uh, or maybe they just go on the internet and you know start search, surfing Facebook or Instagram or whatever. And and what that does is actually like turns on this part of your brain that normally wouldn't be activated you know, until 45 or 60 minutes after you're awake. And so all of a sudden, you're sort of jarred into this space of feeling like you're in go mode, right? You're, you're almost in like fight mode. And so your, your body's having to respond to that. So, you know, I think that I experimented with this for a while because, uh, I was one of those people when I was working at Apple who, you know, my alarm would get off, go off in the morning and I would immediately grab my phone and I would immediately start doing emails. And then after that, I would try and have my morning routine of meditation and journaling and whatnot. And it was, it was a huge challenge. And I remember seeing this study a a few years back and, and so I, I shifted and, you know, had my alarm go off, but I turned off all the notifications, put my phone into airplane mode um, so that, you know, I couldn't be even tempted to go on to anything, even if I wanted to. I couldn't see any emails coming in. And, you know, that allowed me to create the space in the morning where I could go meditate. I could go journal. I could do the things that I needed to. And all of a sudden, that process significantly improved. I found that my meditations went deeper. I found that my ability to, to work and perform during the day uh, was significantly improved. And so I'm wondering if you can, if you can speak to some of this, like what are some, what are some things that, that normal everyday people can do to sort of up their performance, I guess, in a way by using some, some of these simple tools of mindfulness and and meditation in the day-to-day basis.
1: Yeah. It's, um, uh, thank you for those studies too. It's, an, uh, nice to hear that we're beginning to, we're sort of in the, in the integration part where all these all these technologies have hit us and we haven't figured out really how they affect our brains and we're we're getting these studies sort of as we go and so i think one you have to trust your instincts of how you feel when you're after you've been on your phone first thing in the morning versus you know not and and mindfulness practice helps with that so much because you get to sort of check in with yourself throughout the day and because not everybody is the same, and some people might be able to wake up and you know go on Instagram and then go meditate, and but it's very individual, and you have to sort of see where, figure out your own self uh, and your own habits. And I think the the blessing of a mindfulness practice where you not only are just sitting for maybe fifteen or twenty minutes a day, but then using that muscle that you've built for that 15 or 20 minutes throughout the day. And maybe you even use technology, use your phone. Like you could have, I've, um, on occasion, there was a monastery I used to stay at where every hour there would be a nice meditation bell. So when, even if you were working, washing dishes or, you know, sending emails or whatever, this little bell would go off and everybody would stop and come back to their breath for just 30 seconds. And that little adjustment, a small break, then you carried a sense of coming back to your body, coming back to your breath, and just sort of realizing where your mind was at. And if you were spinning out in uh, some political fire at work, or, um, you know, which wasn't very common in the monastery. But but, you know, whatever you were spinning out on in that moment, you had an opportunity, again, to, to make a choice. Do I want to stick with this? And that uh, is incredibly valuable for performance, I mean, in the workplace because so much of our time at work is wasted on sort of drama that we could let go of quickly and then reposition toward what, is, is really, what we really need to prioritize in that moment. So, for example, you get an email that really, you know, charges you up. And you're ruminating, and you you know you write an email that's like <laughs> half done, and then you keep erasing it and going back because you're just angry, and um, you're like, is this safe to send? Is it not safe to send? And you and you know before you know it, an hour's gone by, and you haven't done anything. You've just sort of stewed. And if you have that. You know, maybe every two hour reminder go off um, and you can use your phone for that. You know, you can put on the Zen bell or something and it it will pull you back and, and just do a minute of meditation right there. And in that moment where you become the observer of your own mind rather than engaged and locked in the wave, as I put it, you're far more free. I mean in an existential sense you're painting the canvas of your day rather than the the like <laughs> the, the 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 canvas painting you. And so that's one tip that I would give but on a on a sort of more practical level yeah getting in the habit of doing your practice uh first thing in the morning if you're able or right before you go to sleep or um maybe on your lunch break and having a routine like that Um, is very helpful for your practice just to be in routine and early in the morning before you go to bed also helps produce more restful sleep so i find um those times of day and if i can get into into a habit pattern to be much better than if i'm um and it just it helps you set your intention for the day it helps you start off on a positive note i mean there's infinite benefits to Um, going right into your practice, you know, or right into your run or, or, you know, but, but not uh, um, because so much of like, if you go on email, or you go on social media, first thing, you're instantly getting into um, a sort of the prefrontal cortex mode, which is absolutely not the present moment. It's the, it's it's the future. And it's sort of, it's, it's an amazing facet of our brain that we can plan and organize, but it's, it's not here and now. And so it automatically creates more stories and social media, I think is like the worst one, even though I've, I've done this certainly woke up and checked my Instagram right away. Cause you instantly get into compare and contrast mindset where you're thinking about social media has put us in this instant, uh, place where we're all a number, you know, and what we're doing, it's like, uh, as if the popularity contest wasn't bad enough already. It's like, now you have these, these numbers to rate. And it's just, I think is, is one of the worst places to start in terms of, uh, coming at your day in a way that will be enjoyable.
2: Mm. Yeah. I mean, those are some, so those are some really incredible points. And I think one of the reasons why I was so intrigued, about your work was, you know, you you wrote this, I mean, you've written a, a couple of great books, but you wrote this great book called Saltwater Buddha. And I love this sort of comparative analysis. And in some ways, it reminded me uh, a little bit, um, but in a different way of Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance. And the reason for that is because you are drawing this parallel of finding mindfulness, finding Zen, finding uh, meditation in Sort of like what you love to do you know and in and, and being uh out on the waves, you know surfing out on the waves and and I'm curious as to how you know how this shaped your practice, but also you know how other people who are listening to this might start to find that deeper sense of meditation and mindfulness within the the sort of like hobbies that they have, you know, within the woodworking, within the working on the car or you know, whatever, whatever that is for them, whatever their hobby is, how can they start to intentionally and, and more mindfully start to cultivate their, their meditation or, or meditative practice uh, within those hobbies?
1: Yeah, I think that's a fabulous question because I think we're losing, again, I'm not, I'm a, a fan of a lot of technology and use it, but I think The way that it sucks us in, I think we're losing some of the art of just enjoying life (laughs) and enjoying because it's so hard for the mind to adjust out of being, having been on the, you know, the internet or the phone for eight hours and emails back to just being and feeling embodied and our hobbies, the things that we love, like hiking, kayaking, playing football with your friends, like drawing, um, these things that are cooking, uh, gardening, um, these things that engage the body are really, you know, ways that throughout the history of humans, it's like these are the things that have humans have cultivated because they bring beauty into the world, they, they're fun, they engage our senses, and they really keep us in the now as well. So I look at, you know, I try to look at everything as meditation practice and sitting in the stillness is where you um it's sort of like you know going to the gym it's where you build the muscles for attention but then you can easily make that into a project that's not very enjoyable where it's like oh i have to meditate because you know i know it's beneficial and i've read these studies and like and then sort of sit down and grit your teeth and not really get much out of it but if you go out surfing say and you leave your cell phone at home and you go off into the ocean. You're, uh, one, the ocean is so dynamic. You have to keep aware. Um, but two, you know, catching a wave is really fun. It brings you back into a more childlike state where all of a sudden, uh, you're not trying to enjoy it. You know, you just, it just is enjoyable. You know, there's no, um, you're not analyzing why it's enjoyable or <laughs> saying, am I having enough fun out here? I mean, sometimes you can if it's a crowded day. But I think it's really important to find that thing or two things or three things, whether it's you know swing dancing or uh, woodworking or um, where it's like that's your time and you sort of lose a sense of time going by because you're just engaged with it. and And that is... I and mean, that's just the art of enjoying life. And it's something that I think is coming less naturally to us when we constantly are checking our phones and going on in down avenues that take us out of the joy of sort of being embodied. And then when you find that space, like the, the, the flow state where people are really um, going back to performance, where you're you're doing these things maybe at a high skill level, like if you're you're, you're surfing a lot and you've, you've honed those skills and then you challenge yourself, you know, the way flow is supposedly catalyzed more easily is if you have practiced the skill a lot and then you take it to an edge where you're getting, um, a little more adrenaline, not an overdose of adrenaline, but a little adrenaline. It's like that space can really open up our full potentiality in a way that is very informative for then coming back to your meditation practice, because again, you log that experience of flow that you had out in the waves or, you know, woodworking or what have you. And then you come back to your sitting practice and you say, Oh, you know, maybe it's not about attaining something or sitting here and gritting my teeth and getting my practice in. It's about letting go into the spaciousness sort of, of, of the moment. So they can inform each other. Um, sort of stillness and movement, movement and stillness, to quote the Da De Ching,
2: I think they're uh, it's all one practice. Nice. I, I like that. And I, and I like the, the sort of preface or the, the, the acknowledgement or the warning that it can turn into something, uh, you know, leveraging our hobbies, leveraging the things that we love as a means to dive into our meditative practice or, or our mindfulness practice, to be sort of kind in those spaces. Because I remember you know, when I was singing. And that really initially was like this meditative space for me. And when I started to pursue it as a career, it started to turn into something that all of a sudden wasn't meditative. And it was extremely frustrating. And it's it sort of evolved into this sort of negative experience. And so I had to find uh, you know, mindfulness and meditation outside of that. And so, you know, we I, I think being mindful of the The pressure that we can sometimes put on ourselves to like meditate properly, um which is just sort of like a a weird uh, a weird thing unto itself. It's like oh, I, I can't meditate. Why not? well, i I don't know how. And it's like, well, maybe you're doing it right now. it's it, it is kind of a funny, it is kind of a funny experience. so um in in terms of some of the some of the key takeaways and some of the main lessons that that you talk about, in your book, um, and, and some of the things that you actually tackle within the saltwater Buddha, what, what was one of the, like the surprising lessons that you took away, um, on the journey of writing this book and on the journey of what you wanted to communicate to people, like the sort of a core intention of this book.
1: Saltwater Buddha was actually, is my first. And I, it's been a while now. Um, I read it, that one came out in 2009 and my second one, The Fear Project, was more, uh, it was 2013. And that's sort of a journalistic and scientific book about fear and courage. How do we become courageous? And what are some techniques to make, you know, build courage and build more liveliness? And then my sequel is actually the To Saltwater Buddha, All Our Waves Are Water, is the one that, that has just come out. So that one's kind of fresh the freshest in my mind um and it, it's it's telling stories about my own life and i didn't realize as i was as i was writing it um that i was doing this but i realized once i was done that every chapter in some way was about failing or making a mistake um or sort of engaging with a practice surfing or mindfulness or a relationship or a job in a way where i sort of you know ended up faced Flat <laughs> on the on the concrete, and so in a nutshell, though I think what I was doing unconsciously was was going back and realizing that each one of those times where I fell flat, you know, the time where I was chasing the girl who wasn't right for me and was convinced she was the only way to make me happy, or um, the time, you know, where I I was trying to be somebody I wasn't, and doing a job where I. You know, I had convinced myself that this was what I should be doing, but really I was trying to impress, uh, you know, some my friends or, or, you know, uh, and hadn't realized it or hadn't been honest with myself. Like those times where you go off your path, essentially, where you're not aligned with who you truly are, are the most valuable. Because if you, at some point, and hopefully you fail early to use the, (laughs) you know, the um, Silicon Valley mantra, hopefully you fail early enough where... Um, You don't have to go down that, that line too long, but that however long it takes you to realize this isn't going well and I can adjust. Those are the moments where you have to go deep and use these, um, use whatever intuition you have or whatever techniques you have. For me, it's often meditation to come back and to remember your own inner wisdom, inner strength. Um, and find your own inner joy because often those times when we're sort of falling flat, we're looking for circumstances to make us better, rather than finding <laughs> that what's be- you know the happiness and the joy are inside. Even if you get them from a new car or something, you're the one producing that feeling <laughs> of joy. So even then, you know you're ultimately the one who's in charge of that joy. And so it's it's uh, but sometimes you have to sort of get out of that habit and realize what the alternative is, which is a lot of beating your head against the rock (laughs) to remember. And so that, you know, in a nutshell, I think is what my writing is about. Cause I like, you know, we have to go through that again and again. And I think the stories are bookmarks for me so that when I run into that time again, where I'm really frustrated or really angry or, or just really worn down, I can say, Hey, I learned something from this the last time and it wasn't, um, and, and what can I learn this time?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I, you know, I really do think that what you just said is, is really important because I think, especially as guys, like we have to almost learn this lesson the hard way. And, and I can only speak for myself in this experience of, you know, starting to realize that that joy, that happiness that fulfillment that we're that we 're seeking through whatever we 're building whatever we 're trying to create whatever we're trying to do professionally in our career, you know that's that's a part of it, and that on the other side of it is that we generate that happiness, we generate that joy within us, and that when we put that happiness joy whatever whatever that experience is that we're seeking that we're searching for, when we put that outside of ourselves onto something else, and we say this is now responsible, my business is responsible for my happiness. My, you know, partner is responsible for my joy, my fulfillment. Um, as soon as we put that out there onto them, a, it's a very heavy burden for them to bear, and and b, if anything. Um, you know, happens to them, then we're left in a very precarious situation where all of a sudden um, our joy is not within us and it's, and it's without us and now it's gone. And so, you know, I think what you're saying is extremely important. And and I just want to tie that back in because uh, we do need to wrap up, but I, I wanted to tie that back into the fact that like, I had to learn that, you know, I heard that all the time. And, you know, I started reading Buddhist books and, you know, Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance, and they were all pointing towards this concept. And I kept hearing, you know, you you create happiness within, you create joy within. And I remember hearing that statement sometimes and be like, Yeah, 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 I know that. And and yet I wasn't actually doing anything about it. It's like I conceptually knew it, but I wasn't implementing it in any way, shape, or form. And I was still putting the happiness and the joy and the excitement outside of myself on on things that were contingent on on uh, uh, things that I had no control over, you know, and so it was really, really interesting, and it was a hard lesson to learn. And um, listen, man, I, I really appreciate you having on here, uh, coming on here, because I think you have some incredible insight um, for everybody that's that's out there listening. You should definitely go check out uh, Jamal's two books, The Fear Project, um, and you know, I think diving into courage. I think everything that we talked about today. It really does help to cultivate a deeper sense of courage uh, and, and saltwater Buddha. The other book, um, either one of those books are going to be great reads. And Jamal, if for people that want to get in touch with you or, or reach out or follow along with your journey, where can they find you?
1: Social media is a good place where I update a lot, Instagram and and Facebook, and then I also have a a mailing list at jamalyogis.com. It looks like jamalyogis.com, J-A-I-M-A-L-Y-O-G-I-S.com.
2: Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you very much. So for everybody else out there that's listening, head on over, check that out. Don't forget to go to mantalks.com for more blog posts, more more podcasts. Subscribe on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening on, Stitcher. And uh, please leave us a review. It goes a long way to get us into the ears and onto the phones of other people. Uh, and uh, until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Join me next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual.